Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. It is a blessing to have people in the building this morning. Uh, it will be a greater blessing when there can be more people in the building, not that I am dissatisfied with all of you here. I just know that there are many of our brothers and sisters that we long to be with uh, who are watching from home, so greetings to you this morning as well. This morning, in God's Word, we're going to be in the book of, of Revelation 1. Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8, has captured my heart. This text is an appropriate text for this, our first Sunday back in the building where Cornerstone Bible Church meets. We know that this is not all of Cornerstone Bible Church, that we are scattered across the Orange County area, maybe a little bit further into Riverside. But this text is an appropriate text for this morning. This text begins with a greeting, and we have not been able to greet one another in person in months. But then this text proceeds from greeting to glory. This text erupts in praise, just as we will at the end of service. This text also focuses on Christ, who loves us and released us with his blood, just as we will focus during our time in the Lord's Supper. But this passage also exalts a great and sovereign God. And our hearts need to be encouraged by the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The one who holds human history in his hand. I'll begin by reading, uh, I'll begin the reading this morning in Revelation 1 verse 1. The passage we'll focus on this week will be in verses 4 through 8, but I'm going to start at verse 1. Revelation 1, 1, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Can I hear an amen? Hey, with people here, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for preserving your word for us. It is a gift that we don't deserve and we want to live worthy of. Uh, we know that saints around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't even have this word in their language, and so it is a treasure. We pray, Father, that your spirit, and even described here as the seven spirits, uh, your, 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 your universal spirit, your, your complete and full spirit, would use this word in our hearts to transform us this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John from the desolate island of, of Patmos, where he had been exiled for his testimony to Christ. The year was around A.D. 95. It's nearly 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. John, who is probably approximately that old, 95, wrote the book specifically to seven churches located in the western half of Asia Minor, which we know is in modern-day Turkey. The churches were responding to, to increased persecution. Local pressure mounted to join in worship of the emperor of the Roman, of, of, of the Roman Empire. Christians would have been seen as disloyal who didn't join in this worship. At the same time, Christianity continued to face hostility from, 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 from Judaism. Originally, being, being connected to Judaism had been kind of a place of safety for, 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 for Christians. It had been, been allowed as part of the Roman Empire. But over time, Christianity was seen as its own religion. And Christians were increasingly targeted as problem members of, 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 of society. Excuse me. They were seen as those who refused to conform. The world was increasingly turning against these out-of-touch Christians who would only worship a king who had been missing for 60 years. From heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ gives this revelation to John so that the readers remain faithful until he returns. It is written so that the saints would stay loyal to Christ so that they would wait for Christ, so that they would proclaim Christ, and so that they would suffer faithfully for Christ. The greeting and, and, and doxology, verses 4 through 8, it contains a valuable encouragement for saints who live in tumultuous, changing times. And this morning we're going to see four responses we ought to have to the encouragement of verses 4 through 8, so that we remain loyal to Christ. We're going to see four, uh, uh, four responses we ought to have to the encouragement of verses 4 through 8 so that we remain loyal to Jesus Christ. And the first response is rest in the grace of the triune God. Rest in the grace of the triune God. In Revelation 1-4, John begins, John to the seven churches that, that are in Asia. Now these seven churches were real churches. They were churches with a diversity of strengths and weaknesses. The number seven, though, was symbolic of fullness, uh, of, 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 of a, 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 a completeness, excuse me, or a universalness. The letter was written to seven churches, but it, it applies to all churches. It was written to seven churches, but it applies to all churches. And these churches that John was writing to were in need of good news. They were living as loyal subjects to a resurrected king in heaven, while on earth, life was hard. And being loyal to Jesus Christ while on earth is hard. We struggle against our own flesh, but we also struggle in a system that is loyal to false gods. Most of the time, the world is only just okay with us if we keep quiet about our Lord. 
When we faithfully testify to our Lord, when we faithfully proclaim what he requires, the world is often deeply offended by the Christ of scriptures. Living loyal to Christ is hard. John greets these saints who were suffering with grace to you and peace. And I know that many of the New Testament letters begin that way so we can get get used to it, but those are sweet words. He begins with this encouragement uh, that those to whom he writes have received grace from God and that they have subsequent peace with God. God has not treated his people according to what our sins deserve. God has had favor on those who were his enemies. God has reconciled his enemies to himself. God has blessed us with this guaranteed spiritual well-being that's only possible now that war with God has ended. Those who have grace with God live in peace with God. Grace and peace is good news and we can't get tired of it. It is good news for those who suffer while waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are where we rest when our life is in chaos. It is where we rest when our loyalty is tested. Grace and peace are the driveway where we park our cars. It is the home we retreat to. It is the bed on which we lie down on. This undeserved grace, this this unbreakable peace, this forever peace is guaranteed by the triune God, the one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. John says that this grace grace to you and peace is from him who is and who was and who is to come referring to God the Father. And he begins with the present tense there, which really if you you would kind of expect him to begin with the past tense, who was and is and who is to come. But he begins with the present tense. And in so doing, he reminds his readers of God's revelation of himself in Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. Grace and peace is from God the Father. God the Father, who is self-existent who has eternally been, who is without beginning, who is, and it says, who is and who was and who is to come, who is going to inject himself in an obvious and and final way into human history. God is independent of man. He is sovereign over men. And he is totally able to fulfill his word and to deliver his people. So this grace and peace is from God the Father, but it's also from the Spirit. In the middle of verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now don't worry, you don't have your theology wrong. There's not really nine parts to the Trinity. Father, seven parts of Spirit, and one part of Son. This is not a typical way in the New Testament to refer to the Holy Spirit, but clearly it is the right interpretation. It's inspired by by Zechariah 4, particularly in verse 10, and I'll let you look at that later. The seven spirits emphasizes the, the, the omnipresent and the omniscient nature of God's Spirit who sees all who is ready before God's throne to do all that God the Father wishes, 
throughout the whole earth, including, and good news for us, extending God's grace to us. And that is how we respond to God's grace. That's how we respond in saving faith to the gospel. It's through God's sevenfold spirit. The spirit is unstoppable, doing exactly what God the Father in his throne wishes. This grace and peace is from God the Father, it's from God the Spirit, but also from God the Son. Beginning of verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Each of these three phrases would be encouraging to the increasingly persecuted saints. Describes Jesus as the faithful witness. Jesus spoke all the truth the Father gave him to speak. To say He was the faithful witness. As Jesus said before Pilate in John 18, verse 37. John 18, 37. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Christ came to testify to the truth. He is the faithful witness. Jesus faithfully testified even when it cost him his life. And being a faithful witness will cost the lives of many of Jesus' followers. Being a faithful witness may cost your life. But we have no reason to fear being that faithful witness. Because Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn of the dead refers to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And in that resurrection from the dead, Jesus is in first place. He is preeminent over all who will be resurrected after him. Everyone resurrected after him are the trophies of his victory over sin and death. And by God's grace, there will be millions of such trophies. Jesus lives eternally and he reigns universally. And we see that in the next phrase, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth may not know who the ruler of the kings of the earth is, but they are on a leash held by Jesus Christ in heaven. They have only as much freedom as Christ allows, and they will be held accountable one day by Jesus Christ. The real ruler is Jesus Christ, and he is coming for the nations which belong to him. The nations are his. Every king... Every president, every dictator is under Christ's authority. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We rest in the grace of this triune God because of what his disposition towards us is, that he has an attitude toward us of grace. The Father is independent He is sovereign, and he is ready to to act. He is ready to intervene in human history. The Spirit is ever-present. He is watchful. He is sustaining. The Son speaks truth. The Son conquers death. The Son reigns over every human power. When the triune God turns towards you in grace and gives you the flourishing peace of eternal life, none can stop his hand. God's grace and peace are all every martyr needs. 
when the smoke chokes their lungs and the fire consumes their flesh, all they need is His grace and peace. And all we need is His grace and peace to launch into this world with this gospel. So don't panic, saints. Rest in the triune God. We need to rest in the triune God who gives us grace, and we need to worship Christ who rescues us. We need to rest in the triune God, and we need to worship the Christ who rescues us. As John describes Jesus in these three phrases, he erupts in praise. To him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood, and starting verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says, to him who loves us. Christ's love is in the present tense. His love is an ongoing love for those whom he rescues. His love is the motivation of a rescue. His love is the guarantee of a rescue. As Paul says in Romans 8:37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The verb released means to loose or to untie, to set free. Christ has unchained us who believe in him from the shackles of our slavery to sin. He has liberated us from the tyranny of self-worship. He has blown apart the gates that held us in Satan's dungeons. He has untied us from the tracks of sin upon which the judgment train of death was barreling down. And we have nothing to fear because he has rescued us. Christ released us by means of his blood. His sacrifice of himself satisfy the wrath of God we deserved and atoned for our sin. His priceless blood purchased our freedom. His resurrected life has won our worship. But Christ is not like a superhero who flies in to rescue someone from certain death, only so that they continue on with their day getting their cup of coffee or reading the newspaper. Christ gives new purpose to the lives of those whom he rescues. This was true when God rescued Israel from Egypt. Exodus 19 verses 5 to 6 says, Now then, if you will indeed, and this is God speaking to Israel, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God gave to Israel a special job to do, a special purpose. And it is true of his people today, the church, when God rescues, he redeems, he gives them a purpose. And in verse 6, Jesus makes clear what this purpose is. John says that Jesus makes us priest to his God and Father. Priests have, and, 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 and we as priests have this, this uninterrupted and eternal access to God's presence through God the Son's sacrifice. See, priests are those who belong to God. Priests are devoted to the service of God. They are devoted to the worship of God. But a priest also has a mediatory role, has kind of an intermediate role. 
They, priests, are those who bring people into God's holy presence. And we know that that is the work of Christ alone and sacrifice. But we are also those who say, I can show you how to worship God. God has given us as his priests this ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is our job as priests to be out there begging people to be reconciled to God. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. That is what we do in our families with our children. We beg them to be reconciled to God. God's rescue plan is to release sinners from sin and to bring sinners into His service. In a sense, as priests, we are like maids or butlers or slaves devoted to their master's desires and wishes. But we are also like, like ushers in a, a, a theater. Ushers who want to get people to, 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 to get their seat inside so that, so that they can see the, the splendor of Christ's glory. We're ushers that stand outside, come in and see our Christ. We are on the corner spinning signs, trying to get people to come and see the splendor of our king. That is our job as this kingdom of priests. It is hard to be a priest in the world. It seems way easier to be a monk. It's way easier to stay cloistered in our homes. But to be a kingdom of priests... To bring the nations both near and far to participate in worshiping Christ. This is what we were rescued for. John says to this Christ who rescues us, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. To Christ belongs the fame and the sovereignty. To Christ belongs the reputation and the rule. To him belongs the splendor and the supremacy. We who know Jesus who loves us should yearn for him to receive more glory. Saints, we know where Christ's glory is seen. It is seen in loosing sinners and rescuing those who would be saints. It is seen in our being released and, and then in our loosing of others that we know he loves. We know that they're out there. We know he loves them. But they're still enslaved. So we've got to get out there with this good news. So that they can join us in being released. And become part of that eternal kingdom and priest to the glory of God. From these encouraging verses. We see that we rest in the grace of the triune God. We worship this Christ who rescues us. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then we wait for Christ's dominance to be revealed. We wait for Christ's dominance to be revealed because it will be. And that's where John goes next. And he knows that the suffering saints need to hear this good news. Christ is not waiting eternally to come back. He's going to come back. The beginning of verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
And in verse 7, we're going to see that John references two Old Testament passages. The first is in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It really is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. I mean, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament is referenced so much in the New Testament. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one in which we will not be destroyed. This is one of the foundational verses that, that all the truths of the New Testament center around. When it talks about Christ coming in the clouds, perhaps these are the physical clouds of the earth, perhaps the supernatural clouds of glory like, like, like those that, that filled the, the temple when God's glory came down. Whether it's physical earthly clouds, whether it's this, this glory of heaven, Christ will descend to the earth in certain splendor. His entrance will be grand. And it'll be without any pretense. He's not going to enter with the, with, the, with the boasting and the bravado of a boxer entering a ring, putting on a show. He's not going to enter in some lavish military parade with a bunch of tanks that really is hidden behind hiding and oppressed people. The earth has yet to see such splendor like that of Christ's supremacy when he returns to earth, and it is going to be awesome to behold. Revelation 1.7 continues. It says, What happens when Christ comes in the clouds? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. There's another key Old Testament text behind what is described here. In Zechariah 12.10, and John references Zechariah 12.10, and it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of, of, of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. The Zechariah passage predicts the works of God's spirit in, in, in the people of Israel. So that Israel mourns in repentance over their rejection of, of, their, of their Messiah. And you can see that it is with great sadness that they're mourning, mourning over a lost child when they begin to understand by God's Spirit working in them, what have we done? It is a mourning of repentance. But in referencing this Zechariah passage, John extends the passage, and really Jesus did a very similar thing in Matthew 24, 30. John extends the passage to mention every eye seeing Christ, not, not, not just the, the, the people of Israel. And it says all the tribes of the earth are mourning. And it's difficult to decide what John is doing here. 
Is this morning negative or is it positive? Is, is this the morning of God's enemies or is it the morning of those who have repented and put their faith in Christ? It could be wailing. It could be the cries of rebels who are terrified at the judgment that is coming for them as they see heaven split open and the Son of Man descending and they see destruction coming and then they, they're, they're, they're terrified and so they run and they join the armies that are going to fight against this Jesus. Or it could be the mourning of those from around the globe who have believed the gospel. And this morning is those, and they burst into tears when they see this beautiful Christ. And they understand how unworthy they were of this Lord of glory, that he should die for them, that they, that they get into a new way. What does it mean that Christ loves them and gave himself for them? And they weep when they see Jesus. I think it's probably the second of those, but there's good commentators on both sides. And, and it is possible, it's possible, it's both. It is those billions on earth who are wailing at the thought of this sun destroying them. And then it's the millions who mourn, thinking, oh, this is the one who loves me and gave himself for me. You can see I lean towards the second. The only ones, though, who survive on the day of Christ's certain return are those who mourn, not those who wail. The only who survive on the day of Christ's return are those who mourn and not those who wail. And which will you be? Will you look today on the one whom you have pierced, who, who died for your sins? Will you repent and place your hope in him alone? Will you see what your sins has cost your Savior? And you say, there's no way I'm going to pay for my own sins. I put my hope in that Savior. Or will you continue in your rebellion? Will you continue striving to get as much of the sin-cursed world as you can? Trying to grab as much of it for yourself as you can while there's still a little bit more time. Never knowing when the Son of God is going to strike. Christ is certainly coming back. Will he be your savior or will he be your doom? He is the savior of all those who put their hope in him. Revelation 1.7 ends, So it is to be, amen. God's people heartily affirm this decisive moment of Christ's return. They say, so it is to be. In the battle which follows, none will stand to oppose him, but all those who have mourned over him will reign with him. A kingdom, priest to God, Saints, brothers and sisters, wait for Christ's dominance to be displayed. His sovereignty will be seen. Stay faithful. Stay loyal. He will make all things right. Christ will be revealed. We've seen three responses so far. We need to rest in the grace of the triune God. We need to worship Christ who rescues us. 
We need to wait for Christ's dominance to be revealed. And here's the fourth. Trust God who is over history. Trust God who is over history. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is supreme over the beginning and the end of human history. He is supreme over every event between. He is in charge of the timeline of this creation from A to Z. He is in charge from the first day of creation to the first day of the eternal new creation. The encyclopedia of creation is on God's shelf. It is written by Him. Nothing any search engine will uncover will surprise Him. He's in charge over everything that Google can speak about. God is the Alpha and Omega because He is inherently different from every creature. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is over time, but he acts within time. He is the one who is to come. God will intervene in human history. He is the one who has acted, who is acting, and who will act in glorious display in the full extent of his power. The focus of the term Almighty is less that he has the power to do anything, but that he is universally supreme. None compare with the Almighty. Saints, the Alpha was not a big bang, and the Omega won't be a pandemic, it won't be an earthquake, it won't be World War III. God looks over the immensity of creation, with his, um, with his omnipresent and omniscient eyes. And he sees in everything in creation. With a precision, he sees the, every movement of every atom at every moment. Heisenberg may be uncertain, but God has never been. He has eternally known every past thought, every present thought, and every future thought. And overall, God says, mine. This is my story for my glory. It's all mine. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. The truth of God's authorship and oversight brings comfort to every saint in every scene in human history, from every corner of the world. God's creation has not gone rogue. Every saint knows this is God's show. Wretched Job trusted God. Waiting Abraham trusted God. Imprisoned Joseph trusted God. Wandering Moses trusted God. Barren Hannah trusted God. Penitent David trusted God. Weeping Jeremiah trusted God. Swallowed Jonah trusted God. 
Bold and yet beheaded, John the Baptist trusted God. Fiery Peter trusted God. Suffering Paul trusted God. Exiled John trusted God. Saints of every nation are united in waiting for God who is to come. We yearn to start the second volume of God's never-ending story. But we don't have to fear, saints. We trust the God who is over history. And we ask Him, what part of this, of this big plan do you have? What part do you want me to play? What is my role in this plan? How do I serve as priest in your kingdom? Our loyalty to Christ is tested every day. Often in private when we are alone or in private conversations. Perhaps days are ahead in America where our loyalty will be tested in more public ways like it is for many of our brothers and sisters around the globe. If we just imagine for a minute what it is like to be a saint in a persecuted country, this, this text just pops. To be faithful, to maintain our allegiance, we need the encouragement from Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Heaven has been opened in this passage. We see grace and peace from the triune God. We have seen God and His Word. We have heard the good news of His grace and peace. To Him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this encouragement that saints have needed for nearly 2,000 years. And we will continue to need until Christ comes back. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to ever increasingly, as believers, be loyal to your Son. We pray, Father, that we would have no fear, that the recipients of grace and peace would have boldness to fulfill our roles as, as priests, bringing people to worship you. I pray, Father, we'd go forth with boldness with the gospel, I pray, Lord, that there would be a zeal for Christ to return, but also a sense that his return is soon. I pray, Father, that we would be truly struck with him who loves us and released us by his blood. Oh, Father, may we have so much more love to you. In Jesus' name, amen.